0: Hello and welcome to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Our podcast series is designed to educate, challenge, and inspire listeners while keeping you updated on developments regarding modern trust law and powerful planning opportunities available, all in an effort to deliver direction and control to clients and their advisors. In this episode, we sit down with guest William Lipkin, Attorney, partner, and chair of Wilson Elser's Tax Planning and Controversies Practice for Part 2 of our discussion on incomplete non-grantor trusts, along with the Kasner case and the concept around undistributed trust income.
1: Welcome back to my very fascinating interview with Bill Lipkin, Uh, as we discuss very powerful planning tools, state tax planning tools available using top-tier trust jurisdictions like South Dakota. So we hope you enjoy the conclusion of my interview with Bill Lipkin. And as always, we appreciate you listening in. Um, could you comment on on a, on a piece of this that you started to talk about versus source and non-source income? Because, sure. and we're gonna get and we're gonna get to this later on uh, for sure because of the pending case at the Supreme Court, but this idea of taxation of undistributed income is very much part of this tax, state tax play that kind of goes hand in hand with the ING strategy. Could you explain that and juxtapose it and tell me, explain how that all kind of comes together? Sure.
0: David Warren, I believe, is domiciled in the state of Pennsylvania. If David Warren buys a piece of rental real estate in California the rent from that fixture in California, that real estate is source income to California and David will file a non-resident income tax return for California. If David were lived in Pennsylvania, but were was employed by a California company, um, the wages coming out of that California company uh, uh, could very well be source income. If David was a 10% holder of a subchapter S company or a limited liability company that had an operating trade or business in California, the income on his 10% share generated by the activities in California will be deemed source income. Constitutionally and legitimately, States are entitled to an income tax at least those that have income taxes on their source income So that the non-grantor trust Does not eliminate state income taxation on source income Everything I've just said that would occur to David as an individual would also occur to David's South Dakota non-grantor trust however the most important thing about non-source income is that intangibles, and I'll define that in a moment, are deemed to be domiciled where their owner is domiciled. Intangibles include stock of a corporation, partnership, a, lim- a partnership interest, or an LLC interest, so that If the stock of a California corporation is owned by a South Dakota non-grantor trust, that stock is deemed domiciled in South Dakota. Therefore, it's not source income. To give you a vivid example, last year we represented a a major uh, fiduciary where they had a series of trusts, actually going back to 1930, that owned about 95% of a New York corporation. And these trusts were all governed by New York law, but they happened to have a Delaware uh, trustee. And not only was it our position that both the sale of the stock was 1.65 billion, as well as dividends, and just before this sale, there was $150 million in dividends was all non-source income for the reasons I have set forth. With numbers of that magnitude, I was in, in a belt and suspender way of thinking, I had my team confer the day before the closing with the tax authorities in New York that they hadn't changed their position. So this, anytime a, you are evaluating with a potential client, um, you have to look at the state of his, especially of his domicile, and this is a separate subject we should get to, as to what income is source and what income is non-source. Some states have some real peculiar quirks in that regard. Mm-hmm. Well, and we'll certainly get there. But thank you for making
1: that distinction. So, so to summarize, um, it, it to summarize in, in, in relative to two separate tax moves given the right set of facts and circumstances bill you you have the capability of potentially avoiding substantial capital gains on sale of a low cost basis um, asset and after that the ability to avoid taxation on undistributed income for uh, non-sourced income um, inside of the same trust you've created to avoid uh, capital gains and so That's the, true.
0: Capital gains, dividends, interest—the income within that trust after that liquidity event uh, will not be subject to state taxation as long as it's accumulated.
1: So, and in, in, in to take that sort of a step further, so we, you, through your planning, um, you've been again, in the right facts and circumstances, we can avoid. Again, the, and I'm getting to a point here. We can avoid substantial capital gains. We can avoid undistributed income, which is powerful when we're talking at a dy- a dy- about a dynasty trust-type situation, and, Bill, going back to your community property trust strategy, if we impl- um, incorporate that, we also have the potential uh, to have a 100% step-up step up in basis at the death of the first spouse. So the way I analyze that, and I certainly don't have your experience, but I mean, we could be looking at a three-part powerful, tax play, state tax play, given the right facts and circumstances. Am I I looking at this correctly?
0: Yes. You know, let me just add as a practice point, many a time we've counseled clients who are contemplating the sale of their business that even though they could get an interesting appraisal on the value of a minority interest, Start off with the non-grantor trust and eliminate the state income tax, uh, pay the federal income tax, and then do your planning uh, into completed gift trusts after the fact, because nobody should want to use up their gift tax exemptions for values that are simply going to go to pay federal income taxes. There's a very interesting tax planning
1: uh, uh, play in that. Now, again, this is all all very compelling and and wildly uh, timely right now, given changes in the federal tax code. Could we transition <coughs> uh, for a bit of a discussion on how you see PPLI applying in this particular strategy, or or just generally um, tax tax planning strategies? Because yeah. I know you've written on that, and and it seems to be appropriate now to talk about it.
0: Well. Private placement life insurance falls into two categories. To the extent that one simply wants to have a portfolio of income grow without state taxation, and one is willing to select um, insurance-dedicated funds offered by uh, the insurer there are published revenue rulings to make clear there's no particular tax risk in doing that. However, to the extent that one has uh, owns an asset and contemplates a very substantial liquidity event in the indefinite future, the thought of getting that into a private placement insurance policy so that the entire gain on that marvelous liquidity event is free of all taxes. And in addition, the money is available to be borrowed out. And in addition, upon the death of an insured, it comes out tax-free. That is a very, very big carrot. In that regard, there, Besides a statutory requirement with respect to diversification, there is a case law requirement involving something called owner control. And the owner control doctrine goes back to Helvering v. Clifford in 1940, and it uh, was the latest case on it was the Weber decision. In uh, the summer of 2015 and the premise of owner control going back to that decision is that if the person substantially retains beneficial enjoyment and in addition is directing the investments he not the insurance company should be taxed the Merely directing investments, as you know as a trustee, does not make you responsible for the tax consequences of those investments. It's the maintenance of beneficial interest. In the Weber case, the taxpayer had a grantor trust, and the tax court conveniently said that because it's a grantor trust, therefore he's retained full beneficial interest. We'll skip whether that's a right or wrong proposition. But a non-grantor trust for the benefit of one's children is a separate taxpayer. So based upon the Helvering v. Clifford decision and subsequent thinking and is reinforced by the Weber decision, to me, it's a no-brainer that if somebody wants to get some asset that they own, that's going to go up in value into a policy, they want that policy to be owned by a non-grantor trust. That puts me smack dab into uh, South Dakota and Nevada again. Well, let's talk about jurisdictionally there with respect to
1: PPLI, Uh, I know that um and I've learning learning a lot more about it. We're seeing more and more uh, PPLI activity um, from around the country. Okay, I'm gonna uh, we're gonna edit that. I guess that I was too far from the microphone. so I'm gonna start over, Bill, with the question. So, Bill, relative to PPLI and um, which jurisdiction is best there? Because you know, there's a couple different analyses going on. Which which is a good just jurisdiction? Which is a good jurisdiction for insurance? And sometimes and sometimes there are different answers what what are the factors that you look at when you're when you're advising um, where which state I suppose should govern what state's law should govern because I know a big a big piece of that is the insurance premium tax could could you give me some analysis on that
0: well if we're talking about somewhat standard domestic private placement just to run a portfolio and someone is making annual premium contributions, um, then South Dakota and Alaska sort of went hands down to avoid uh, a state premium tax. That would be a deduction uh, on each premium paid. Where we're dealing with um, explosions in value and assets that are coming out of the set law, frankly, we, we cannot deal with uh, a U.S.-based company, we confine our practice to certain offshore insurance companies which have elected to be taxed as U.S. corporations. We're simply not interested in uh, dealing with foreign accounts for current reporting purposes. Um, And uh, in that regard, more often than not, There isn't much of a a premium paid after the first year, the first couple of years, so that I'm not overly motivated by the state premium tax in that uh, uh, situation. What is important is contemplating the death of the insured and a fund. You want to be in a state uh, where the settler of the trust could be a beneficiary, although we generally don't do that. You want to make sure there are no state income taxes on the reinvestment. You want to make sure you have a dynasty trust. You want to make sure you have superb decanting provisions. And you want to make sure you have superb um, you have, uh, provisions with respect to fraud zone conveyancing and what it takes for someone to succeed. Um, so. I I think that the issues on jurisdiction selection uh have a lot to do with the fruits of the policy um and after we've made that decision we might if it was coming down to a, making a choice we would look at the uh state premium tax mhm well, and that's a whole nother topic. I, we'd love to invite you back, I
1: think, uh, to talk on because I know you've written a lot on it and, and you've taught me a lot about it. Um, so thank you for that. Bill, what I'd like to do, and I think it's probably a really appropriate way to kind of tie all this together, is to talk about a Supreme Court case that's pending right now that I know a lot of us are very excited about in the industry. And um, it's called the Kasner case, as, as of course you know. and and I'm very anxious to talk to you about your your perspective about it, but just a a quick summary from our perspective because bridgeford's very passionate about the case and 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 what it what it could potentially hold for the industry. um but all of these planning concepts that that we've been talking about with bill um really are and can be impacted in some way or another by the court's decision, which is expected at the end of june. uh bridgeford was so. Uh, uh, interested in the issue and and following it so closely that we were part of an effort to to, uh, commission an amicus brief uh, to uh, support the the taxpayers position to support North Carolina's position here and we're very optimistic um, but I I certainly would defer to to Bill on his thoughts on the case Um, again it's called the Casner case it's it comes out of a line of cases uh, that hold very similar um, positions relative to this concept of undistributed income and the constitutionality of states <laughs> to be able to uh, to tax uh, undistributed income, undistributed non-sourced income uh, that's properly held in a resident trust, properly administered in a no-tax jurisdiction like South Dakota. So again, all these concepts, in one way or another, are impacted by this case. And 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 we believe, if it goes the way that it it, it, it in our estimation should go based under the Constitution, it's going to affirm and confirm uh, many of the brilliant tax moves people like Bill Lipkin and, and others across the country have been doing for, for many years. But that's, of course, my perspective, and uh, and I don't have the experience that Bill has. So, Bill, please, could you please comment maybe on some of the history of the cases, maybe even mention some of the other ones that, that hold similar? And and i love your thoughts on it, because I know you're following this closely.
0: Uh, David, this is going to be a long answer, not a short one. Uh, so <laughs> buckle up. Um, Hasner has nothing similar. There are no similar cases. The North Carolina legislation was so self-evidently absurd that the underlying court in North Carolina said it was unconstitutional. The Supreme Court of North Carolina said it was unconstitutional. And frankly, it was a shocker that the state went to uh, the Supreme Court on the issue, and perhaps a bigger shocker that the Supreme Court took it. What What the North Carolina statute says, that if David Warren moves to South Dakota, sets up a trust for the benefit of his five children, and 20 years later one child happens to move to North Carolina, then North Carolina can tax the entire, all undistributed income of the trust. That should be mental poppycock. And that's, while not the words used by the Supreme Court of North Carolina, (laughs) the result of the judges in North Carolina came as no shock to any of us. Other, prior to that, most of the the cases involving bad statutes had to do with statutes that said if the set law is domiciled in a state, then regardless of anything else that may ever come to pass, the state can tax the trust. New York said that was unconstitutional. New Jersey followed. California didn't even try that. Virginia, God bless their soul, has that silly statute, but the Virginia Division of Taxation says, well, we know in certain cases that was, that's probably unconstitutional, so write us a letter and we'll give you a ruling and, and we won't bother to tax you. But what happens? Why is it at SOCUS and what are the implications? Well, you can't start to stare out the window without remembering that only recently there was the Wayfair decision involving uh, the ability of states to collect taxes uh, on internet companies and pushing to one side the requirement of physical presence. If, following from that, the Supreme Court says you don't need to have a resident trust. You don't need the settler to be in North Carolina. You don't need to have any assets in North Carolina. You don't need to have any fiduciaries in North Carolina. All you need is for some beneficiary to be spending 181 days out of the year in North Carolina. It could be a very lovely home in the the Smoky Mountains. Uh, They could be living in Asheville, which is a lovely city. And that's enough for taxation what does that cause us to do and at this point let me put that on hold uh, pause for a moment and talk about some quirky legislation out of New York and then I'll tell you what we're how these I'll tie it together New York has some interesting things on what constitutes source income New York says That if 5,000 partners of a partnership all sell their partnership interest to a single purchaser, and that partnership was doing business in New York, the sale is not of the intangible, the partnership interest, but we deem it source income. Fascinating. New York says that if an entity, more than 50% of the entity is in New York real estate, we deem it source income. The coup de grace from New York was that New York passed a statute that said if you have one penny of New York source income and a billion dollars of non-source income, we're taxing the entire trust. Mm-hmm. The, that one would think would be patently unconstitutional. Uh, at least, I did think that. Now as a practical matter, since you know we prefer to think rather than fight, we have workarounds for this statute. And that causes me to stare out the window. New Jersey decided after their Kasner case, which had to do with source and non-source in a Subchapter S company, uh, to put into their instructions for filing a return the same result that you have in the New York statute. And when recently one asked uh, senior people in New Jersey Division of Taxation, was this valid, what's your authority? Sheepishly, they say, well, our authority is that we put it in our instructions, which is very interesting uh, that instructions constitute the same thing as state legislation. Now, to tie it together, if the Supreme Court reverses the Supreme Court of North Carolina and says that the mere residence in North Carolina of a discretionary beneficiary who has received no distributions and may never receive any distributions is enough to tax everything, maybe the same Supreme Court would say that if there's one penny of source income the state can tax the entire amount so the implication at the moment is that we have for all of our states in putting in what I refer to as prophylactic language dealing with the problem because if Casner is reversed the the ability to make use of the um, non-grantor trust statute this non-grantor trust strategy may be curtailed uh enormously um what more can one say but i you know can you contemplate David a trust that has ten beneficiaries living in ten high end ten different income tax states, each state saying we're taxing the entire trust?
1: Well, it just doesn't make sense.
0: Um, well, there there you go. But now, of course, we're going to rely upon the Supreme Court of the United States coming out with a decision that makes dollars and cents.
1: Mm-hmm. No, I, and I I don't mean to put you on the spot because I know you. You're a tax expert, not necessarily a constitutional scholar, although I would imagine you have a lot of experience there as well
0: wait, 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 david david oh, I'll interrupt sure. you on that please We have because of what we've done on non grantor trusts from time to time offensive people sometimes referred to as creditors have brought actions in states alleging um a fraudulent conveyance into a trust, and they've endeavored to uh, make the trust a defendant where there real where there's a jurisdictional issue. I mean, uh, Bridgeford isn't licensed to be a trustee anyplace except uh, South Dakota. Picture somebody filing uh, uh, an action in Cape May County, New Jersey, naming Bridgeford as a defendant because one of the beneficiaries lives there. Mm-hmm. Um, we, I say we, my my partner uh, Tom uh, Gentile and I have litigated well, uh, c- those sorts of cases. Uh, unfortunately, uh, they've all been settled, so we I can't point to any great decisions uh, uh, that sustained our point of view, um, but we do have a good sense, at least historically, as to what constituted uh, the necessary requirements for jurisdiction, Wayfair put it all in doubt, and Kessner could make it even more doubtful or less doubtful, depending upon what the court says.
1: Mm-hmm. Which does lead me to the the question: Do you do you have a thought? You know, given the makeup of the court, not that I want you to take any bets or make predictions, but uh, what, do you, what do you think is is likely to happen in your in your in your thinking?
0: Well, the most likely result is that um, the Supreme Court of North Carolina is not reversed. That's the most likely result. What we don't know and what gives greater pause, perhaps, is that we don't know what words get used by which justices and whether, in sustaining the decision of the Supreme Court of North Carolina, the words throw into doubt many principles that we've been operating under for a long time. Mm-hmm. That's just a total unknown. You have, I mean, you have non trust attorneys, uh, the, the Supreme Court justices with law clerks with no particular experience or training in trust matters uh, or dealing with uh, clients who care about that, who are going to select words that can implicate uh, these structures. That's a total unknown, David. Uh, So I think that, as they said in your father's lifetime, that loose lips sink ships. It's the words and the decision that give me more pause than necess- than, than, than worry over the decision itself. Right.
1: No, it's well said, Bill. I, I appreciate your perspective on it. And, you know, I think it's an excellent way to end our time together because it kind of pulls together so many of the concepts that you've gone through. Um, you know, Bill, if there's something you'd like to add to any of the con, con um, topics, please do so now.
0: Or forever hold my peace. <laughs> that's right. Uh, well, no, I think, I think you've done an excellent job, uh, David, of getting on um, uh, the table uh, a lot of the highlights of this. Um, um, if you wanted to, we could always do uh, a live webinar on the uses of non-grantor trusts. I do have a slideshow that works uh, for that that would go into more detail with more illustrations than we could ever do just on a a podcast.
1: No, I like that idea a lot. Well, Bill, I I, I have to thank you again, not only for today, but but for your friendship uh, to me personally and to Bridgeford. You've you've given us tremendous guidance over the years, and you've been patient.
0: Well, wait, David, I'm going to interrupt you. Please do. Uh, Having nothing to, this is a a plug for Bridgeford. Um, We have a, very substantial families, net worth of some $5 billion, that for a variety of reasons, uh, as the family has oozed out over the generations, wants a private trust company. And in doing a private trust company, you can have a regulated one or a non-regulated one. So with this family, legal fees are never at issue. So I had no budget on what I did. We surveyed the various states with their various provisions on uh, private trust companies and we concluded that we wanted to be in South Dakota because of a lot of factors. But then in order to provide the administrative services necessary for a private trust company, we're going to have to contract with an existing regulated commercial trust company to provide those services. And we, of course, are going to contract with Bridgeford. So for us, in our, off, in our firm and our practice, uh, South Dakota is great and we are deeply appreciative of the quality of services that Bridgeford provides.
1: thank you very much for that bill um you know it, it means a lot to us and and you took a chance on a young trust company as i said at the beginning and and we take that very seriously um so as we conclude uh certainly bill's contact information will be made available um, I encourage all of our listeners to to reach out to Bill directly. And clearly, he's an expert in this space, and he's helped attorneys. and And the thing about Bill that is actually unique is is he's not a threat to your clients, uh, in in so much as he works very well collaboratively to come in, almost like a surgeon, and and do his his expertise and move on without disrupting the client relationship. I've seen him do it multiple times. I've introduced him to lots of attorneys around the country, and will continue to do so. So. Again, Bill, thank you very much for your support and for your time today, and uh, we will certainly stay in touch.
0: Thanks again for listening to Bridgeford Trust Company's Delivering Direction and Control podcast series. Be sure to subscribe to our podcast to keep posted on when new episodes are added. For more information, visit us online at bridgefordtrust.com.